0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Ed Kowaleski, and I'm one of the pastoral elders here at New Life Fellowship. Uh, back in July, Pastor Nate sought the Lord in prayer about what he would like to talk us, to us about, and the book of James came to his mind again and again. Pastor Nate started the series and has covered the first two chapters. After a few weeks of very eventful services, Children's Moving Up Sunday, Homecoming Sunday, and Mission Sunday, We are settling now back into James. Uh, Pastor Nate could not be here today, so I'm picking up where he left off. By way of review, James was Jesus' half brother and the full brother of Jude. Being that James was Jesus' brother, the book of James is basically the teaching of Jesus in letter format. The letter is of great interest because James probably had a lot of conversations with Jesus and thus formed some deep convictions and wisdom based on things that Jesus taught him. The content of James is cut and dry, no-nonsense, real-world application stuff. Uh, Before we settle back into James, let us pray. Father, I just come to you this morning, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to be with you today. And I ask that you give me the words that I'm to speak, Father. Uh, Let the, the, the worship service what Mike has said, Father, and what the content of today's lesson is. I just pray, Father, that you would be with me, and that I would only speak your words, Father, with grace and with wisdom. And I also pray for the people that are here, that they would have a heart to hear, Father, and that it would be received well. Just praise your humble servant. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today we'll be looking at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. We put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large, and even driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed, and all have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Let's jump back to the beginning, and we're going to start with verse the first two verses. Verse number one: that many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Whoa, It's kind of scary being up here today. So but the question is, is, is James telling you and everyone else who holds himself out to be a teacher that we should not be teachers? I think that's what it says, but, but I disagree. I say no, he's not saying that we shouldn't be teachers, um, because I think we each have a duty and an obligation within the confines of a relationship to, in, to direct and instruct others in a way of their duty and to rebuke them in a Christian way for what is amiss. But what he is cautioning us is to be true to his word and speak from the word. The word and the Holy Spirit will provide the wisdom that is needed and when we assume the role of a teacher. Remember James 1.5? 1, 1, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So what we're supposed to do is we are supposed to take on the role of the teacher. We're supposed to know his word. We're supposed to study it because it has the answers to all the questions. So that places an obligation on us to be learned. Remember Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says, we looked at it when the children's moving up Sunday, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So to all teachers out there, James is saying to us to beware. But who is James referring to when he uses the word teachers? Pastors? Missionaries? Elders? Children's church teachers? Cell leaders? Disciplers, mentors, parents, yes, all of the above. Anyone who assumes a position of authority over another is included in the term teacher, which is probably most of the people who are here in this room. Think about it. All the positions or people on this list are in a position of authority such that people look up to them and listen to everything they say. Sometimes we choose a role, and other times it chooses us. But with each role comes that authority, and with that comes the responsibility. We need to speak with the humility and spirit of learners and not as lords. But why? Why? Well, because the words we speak can be extremely influential. They can be beneficial. Look what Mike's going to do. But they also can be very damaging. We have all heard the expressions that his or her words cut like a knife or cut to the core or cut to the bone. Now, think about the person who spoke words like that to you, or that you spoke the words to. Were you in a relationship with the person who hurt you, or that you hurt? Did the person whose words hurt you have authority over you? I think we've all been hurt by the words of others, including those that we have looked up to and admired. We've also hurt those people around us by the use of our words. And some of these wounds can be deep, and life lasting. So what he's cautioning about is that we need to choose our words carefully. Also, and part of that relationship is we have the ability to impose our preferences on the people around us and it creates a standard. And that person who we have authority over then tries to meet that standard. And the question becomes, is that a worldly standard or is that a biblical standard? And the caution is is that if it's a worldly standard and not a Bible standard, then we have the ability to start judging people. And then based on that we discount them because of we're judging them. And they may have different gifts than we have, so we need to be aware of that and look at them through the eyes of God rather than our eyes. Because what it says is that if our judging of others will make our own judgment the more strict and severe. Matthew chapter seven, verse one, verses one and two provides do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. And if you remember uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. What James is reminding us is that, and when we look at verse 2, he says we all stumble in many ways. So he's acknowledging that we're not perfect. We're not perfect beings and we're going to stumble. So what we need to do is we need to focus on our shortcomings rather than looking at the perceived shortcomings of those around us. What we think, and more importantly, what we say about and do others will prove worse for us than the faults we condemn in others. We should learn to be severe in our judging ourselves and learn to be charitable in our judgments of other people. There is hope for us. It's difficult, but there is hope for us. We have the word. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And this hope James recognizes in the second half of verse two by stating that anyone who is never at fault and what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So what James is telling us is that if we keep our tongues in check, we will also be able to keep our whole bodies in check. But, but I mean, we're talking about our tongues. Um, What we say and how can keep this whole body in check? Well, what he's implying is, is if that we can get to the place where we can avoid those tongue sins, saying things that should not be said, we will most likely have control over our entire body. Thinking about it, keeping our tongues in check is no easy task. It happens all the time. Your just gut reaction is just to spew something out. Um, But what we need to do is to stop. We have two ears. There's a reason why we have two ears. We need to count to five before we respond. Um, But this isn't something that we can do ourselves. This is something that that with the study of the Word and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it can be accomplished. It's a process. Our character, our Christian character, will develop and we get to a point where we can check our tongue. And as a result, we'll be changed by that. And we'll look different. We'll act differently because of that. What he's asking us to do is to pay attention to what comes out of our mouths. If we're able to avoid tongue sins, that'll be a good indication of a change in a repentant heart, which is true transformation. To the contrary, if we appear outwardly to have been transformed and strong in our faith, we are unable to tame our tongue. That is a good indication that there is work to be done, or should, should I say, further surrender. It said in Psalm 39, verse 1, I said it will take... I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue, I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. We need to let resolution and watchfulness, under the influence of the grace of God, bridle the tongue so that all the motions and actions of the whole body will be easily guided and overruled. Let's take a look at verses three and four now to see how James reinforces this premise that he sets forth in the first two. Verse 3 says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal around. I'm not going to assume that anyone here knows much about horses, but I have been around horses, so we're going to go through this together. Hopefully. Oops. All right. That is a horse. Or the head of a horse. All right. Um, so, everybody's seen a horse before? If you haven't seen a close so what I want you to pay attention to is the leather and the metal that's on the horse's head all right all right so now we're gonna break it down so you've got the headpiece you've got the throat latch the brow band the nose piece the reins and the bit all right the bit being the the most important part here because um, we're going to take a look at the bit and the reins and what the reins are done is they're used to pull on the bit so what I want you to pay attention to is, is if you look at, go back to that picture, and you look at where the bit is, it sits on top of the tongue of the horse. You notice that's a very, very small part of the horse. So when you look at this picture, all right, look at the, where the bit is. It's kind of hard to see, but in relation to the size of the rest of the horse, the tongue is very, very small in relation to the, to the rest of the horse. So if we go down to this picture, all right, this is where the bit goes, actually in a, mouse, in a horse's mouth. There's the back teeth, and there's the front teeth, and there's a gap, and there's a tongue. So the bit actually sits on top of the tongue so that as the the rider is on the horse, he controls the horse by pulling on the range with then presses down on the tongue of the horse. And I happen to have here with me today, these are bits. And there's different kinds of bits. This one here is rubber coated, so it goes in the mouth hooks up to the reins, doesn't do that much damage. All right, then you've got this one, this is a single, braid, straight metal. Then you look at this one, All right, this one's got contours on it, so that's going to do more damage. And Then you look at this one, and this has got two pieces, and it's broken in the middle. So think about this being in the horse's mouth, pressing down on its tongue. That's how you control a horse. You can lead it, you can stop it, you can pull back on it, but that's what you do with the horse. How would you like to have one of those in your mouth? So, if we take a look at a horse, the average height for horse breeds is 15.2 hands. How many inches is that? Come on, guys. Um, You live in Saratoga Springs. It's about 60.8 inches. All right? And... Thoroughbreds, though, are an average of 17 hands, and thoroughbreds are the ones that run at the, uh, the racetrack, or they're also used for show horses as well. So they're taller than more other horse breeds. Uh, as for weight, thoroughbreds average about 1,000 pounds, which is about 25 pounds lighter than the average horse breed. So they basically you've got an animal that weighs about 1,000 pounds a ton and is controlled by a bit that goes over its tongue. All right. Horses are big, powerful animals. They're born wild, and they need to be trained, tamed and trained if they are to be ridden. And if you heard this term before, to, to train them to be ridden is what's called broken. This process takes much time, and use of a bit is critical in controlling the horse. Over time, however, horses can be trained such as the bit becomes less critical. There's old horses that you don't even need to put a bit in its mouth, and you can control them. So if you look at the different bits that I brought with me today, they're different because of the amount of pressure that you want to apply upon, upon, on the tongue of the horse so that you can control it. So now let's take a look at verse 4. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. sort of fuzzy, but this is a, a tanker ship. All right? And the rudder is that little piece in the back that the arrow is pointing to. When you take a look at the overall size of the ship in comparison to the rudder, the rudder is very small. Um, in doing my research for the day, I went online and the question was, was the rudder on the titan- Titanic big enough? And had it had been bigger, would they have been able to steer the ship quick or move the ship quicker so that it would go away from the uh, from the iceberg that it hit? And the consensus was it was a slightly undersized, but it didn't make that much of a difference. They were doomed anyway. Um, but for those of you who have been on a motorboat before, um, it's much different than driving a car or steering a bike. When you're on a boat, it takes some time it takes some practice but over time you can develop that skill try to go slow in a boat with that small rudder and you're going like this and then you're going like this and it's just it's a scary feeling but with over time it does come up quickly we used to uh, vacation up on Upper Saranac Lake and actually just off the lake on Fish Creek in order to get from Fish Creek to Upper Saranac Lake there was this channel that you had to go through which had water that was all of maybe three feet deep. So here you are in this big boat, you've got the uh, prop up um, so that you don't hit anything and you're trying to go through this channel. And I go up there once a year, that's my only experience driving the boat and trying to get through the channel without wrecking something is, is an accomplishment because you steer and then you oversteer. It's very difficult because that rudder is very small and when not the whole rudder is in the water, it makes it all the, the, uh, the more difficult. So why is James talking about horses and ships? Because he is comparing them to the tongue. If we look at the first half of verse 5, it says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And what that's saying is, is that the comparisons show that small things can be of vast use, and the takeaway is that with both time and practice, under the influence of the grace of God, we can learn to manage our tongues Because although a tongue is small, it is capable of doing a great deal of good or a great deal of harm. James then goes on in the remainder of verses 5 and verses 6 through 8 to further expand and explain the importance of taming the tongue. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So now he's talking about forest fires. Fighting a forest fire is tricky business. Um, It requires water drops for airplanes and many boots on the ground. But what the guys on the ground are doing is they're not actually running around spraying water on the fire because it's too big. So what they're basically doing is, is they are creating no burn zones where they actually go apart from the fire and they're creating areas where they take out all the combustible materials so that hopefully that when the fire gets there, it'll run out of fuel and it will stop. But the problem is is that, um, and think about this, if you've sat around the campfire, been outside, and you look at the campfire, as it, the, it burns, and depending on the type of wood, a lot of times, especially if you burn pine, what happens is all these embers going up into the air. And you've got a very small fire, hopefully the area around it you've cleared, so there's no risk of starting on fire what's around you. So think about that example. Now take it up a notch and move to a forest fire. All right. Exponentially more flame, more timbers. And what happens is, is all's good except that if the wind comes up and those timbers fly, then they have the ability to jump the no-burn zone, and next thing you know, they've got another area that's unprotected, and you've got a forest fire going on. So that's one picture, and another. All right. So now in turning back to the tongue, let's look at verses 6 through 8. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All the kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So is James now telling us that the tongue is fire ready to set things ablaze. It is itself set on fire by hell and that the tongue is full of evil. And I can this be true that the tongue is evil? And I say yes it is. I mean, I've already pointed that out to you. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So clearly, yes, the tongue, we are evil. We were born with sin. Um, you look at Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23 he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for in it from it is from within, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come sex, immorality, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Let me ask you, isn't it true that the wrong words spoken at the wrong time can spoil the relationship forever? What about a broken promise? What about a bad impression that cannot be repaired? What about an email that you wish you had never sent, or an online posting you wish you hadn't posted? Today is a much different time than back in James's time. In James's time, the written word was limited to the scholars, so people sat down across the table from one another, and they spoke to one another. They could see that person. They could look into their eyes. Today, we have many, many types of impersonal media. We've got our mediums. We've got telephones, cell phones, emails, Facebook. Look at all those things. You're not looking at the person. The person could be next door to you or it could be many miles away. So something comes to our mind and we just blurt it out. Then we hit the send key and it goes. So we need to be even more careful today. Because I find that it's much more difficult to say something to offend a person if you're sitting down across the table looking them at the eye, looking them in the eyes. So is it possible, is it impossible to tame your tongue? I believe it is possible, but you can't go at it alone. We need to rely on supernatural grace and assistance. It is attainable. And the way that we do this is we need to surrender all to him. We need to come to know the word, live according to what we have learned and seek the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be all in and fully committed followers of Christ. God has provided us with the means, and the question is whether we will surrender to him such that the means can be realized. Let me say that again. Get it? God has provided us with the means, and the question is whether we will surrender to him such that the means can be realized. We can't do it ourselves. If we leave it to ourselves, we will fail. But what we need to do, and we have the opportunity to do, is to surrender our lives to what God has for us. And if we can take ourselves out of the equation, our humanness, and set that to the side, and really focus on what God wants us to do, then it is possible to accomplish that. But first we need to get down on our knees and say that, I am sinful by nature, and I cannot do this without you. So let's now take a look at verses 9 through 12. What James is telling us here is that we cannot have it both ways. As a fig tree only bears figs, or a grapevine only bears grapes, and a salt spring only produces salt water, our hearts, our hearts, also need to be pure. Out of our out of our mouths, should only come praise. And if both praise and cursing come out, then we have a heart problem. It's not a tongue problem. It's a heart problem. What comes out of our mouths is the test that will reveal the true condition of our hearts. We're reminded by Romans 15.7 that says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. We must strive for consistency through transformation. So the challenge today for each of you is to take some time today, before you leave or when you get home, and look deep inside and determine whether or not you've tamed your tongue. If not, then you've got some surrendering to do. If it's a work in progress, then you need to surrender more. If yes, praise God. (laughs) Um, But don't be content. So I just challenge you today that that remember what I've said, take a look at it, Uh, learn from this. Um, What comes out of your mouth really is an indication of where your heart is. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning, and I just want to say thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to be with, be with you and share your word. We just love you, Father. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, the hope that we have, and knowing that you provide us with all that we need to be your humble servants and bring glory to you. So just be with us, Father, in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are blessed. Go and be the church.